Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Malcolm White here on the Sunday afternoon. Welcome to MPB Think Radio. I'm here with Kevin Farrell, our producer of many, many years. Today, born in Red Bay, Alabama, raised in Belmont, Mississippi, divides its time between Nashville, Tennessee, and Sheffield, Alabama. Lyman Corbett McAnally Jr. Welcome, Mac. Mal, how's it going, man? It's real good. Uh, thanks so much for dialing in. You're in your attic, and I'm in my basement. Well, that's we got it covered then, I think. <laughs> <laughs> We're Skyping away. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And, uh, you know, you and I have been buddies for a long time. Um, it, it all began up in the Northeast Hills. You living in Belmont and me in Boonville. And you would come over to Boonville and hang out at the Cunningham's house. And yes, I did. Play music. Uh, the Cunningham's lived about a half a block from, from the White House. And I think that's where we first uh, brushed into one another. Yep, that's correct. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know anything then now, and I, you know, now I don't know anything, but I have a worse excuse than I had. I was at least <laughs> young and not knowing anything when we started out. But you played uh, at that time. You, you dropped out of high school, right? Yes. My dad was the assistant principal, so it... Uh, <laughs> he came hard. It required a presentation. I made a little pie chart up. It's probably the only one in my whole life I had, because I wouldn't have actually done that without my dad's permission. Uh, he was, he was, and is still my hero, but, uh, but I, I knew it was going to be a lot harder on him, me dropping out of school to go play in bands and, uh, then it would be on me. I'd just be gone playing music and having a good time. And he was going to get a lot of grief for letting his son drop out of school. So, uh, I had, had to have his approval and I got it. I'm, I'm one of the few musicians that, that is what his parents wanted him to be or he or, or she that's, I, I am, uh, my folks wanted me to be a musician. I'm wow. lucky that way. Yeah. And and my story's parallel but totally opposite. My father did not want me to be a musician <laughs> and was very unhappy because he was a college president when I dropped out of college. Ah. And and so uh whether or not I became what he wanted me to become uh, will remain questionable, but uh, I I know that he did not want me to to be a musician. In fact, <laughs> one time I was leaving the house with my electric Alamo uh, hollow body electric guitar going down to Mike Cunningham's house for band practice. All right. The Finks had broken up and Mike was working on a number of, of new bands and trying out all sorts of people. And I was headed down there with my guitar and my dad stopped me in the driveway and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to band practice. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going down here to Cunningham's and play with Mike. And he said, well, son, you, you can't be an athlete and a musician. And I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah, you're going to have to make up your mind. You, you, you can't be both. And I thought, well, that's odd because, of course, we all knew that we could be. Yeah. Right. But you played uh, you played a lot of different uh, gigs uh, up in Tennessee and around, I'm sure, everywhere up in that part of the country. I, you know, I played, uh, I, I, my mom was a gospel piano player. So I was, I, I, I was always with her doing all day singings and, uh, you know, preaching competitions like the Baptist will have. We used to have what we called association. 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was basically eight preachers back to back, one hour sermon interrupted by a couple of songs and one piece of fried chicken. But uh, <laughs> that we, I, I, but I was in you know in church music uh, up until I was thirteen, and uh, and this guy came to our house in Belmont and and made a pitch to my parents to let me play in a state line honky tonk in Iron City, Tennessee, uh, in his band, which was called Dean and the Reefers, by the way. Oh uh, boy. That was the name of the, of the first band. And I thought my folks were going to throw him off the porch cause they, neither one of them had ever been in a honky tonk and were never going to go. They, even when I played all those years, they never came in the door, but, uh, he, he just kept working them. He said, well, I know you want him to be a musician and I'm a good Christian man and I'll look after him and I'll drive down here and pick him up. Cause I was 13. I couldn't drive and, and I'll take him up there and, and we play five nights a week and, uh, and I'll, I'll make sure he behaves himself and I'll pay him $250 a week. That was my first band gig. I made wow. 250 bucks a week in 1970, which was more than my dad was taking home being a school teacher in Mississippi at that point in time. And it was more than my mom was making at the Wrangler factory. And she was, uh, at Bluebell there. And she, she was a great piano player, but she never charged a penny for playing weddings or funerals or church service. She, you know, it was just what you do. Something in this fellow's presentation made an impression on my parents. And I was playing in Iron City, Tennessee at the Circle E Club that Friday night, wearing sort of a lime green polyester leisure thing that is, he had bought secondhand from George Jones's band. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't necessarily fit, uh, but... I was playing country songs I'd never heard in my life at 13 years old, and but but that was my foray into into playing honky tonks, and I played a bunch of honky tonks for way less money than that pretty soon afterward. But circle of life, you know, I went from Dean and the Reefers at 13 to I'm a coral reefer for the last 25 <laughs> years, you know. So uh, I see it all from here. <laughs> now, from the honky tonk scene, you somehow ended up in Muscle Shows as a studio musician. What what happened in between there? Well, we had to go through Muscle Shoals to get to Iron City. And, and Muscle Shoals, like Belmont at that time, uh, it, it was, was dry, dry county. You know, Colbert County and, and Lauderdale County in Alabama and, and Tishomingo County were, were all still dry counties. So you had to go to Tennessee to get a beer or to play in a band. There was no place to play in a band. We, had, we went to, to Tennessee to have our junior-senior prom uh, all through the time I was in school. But the, the, the session players in Muscle Shoals, Roger Hawkins, the, you know, the rhythm section guys, uh, would come up to Tennessee Line to sit in and play. They never got to play live except when they were recording in the studio. So I met those guys up there. And I was so bashful when we took a break. Well, Circle E Club was really rough, too. There were people with live chainsaws in, inside the building. Uh, they, they, they'd rev up a chainsaw instead of applauding. And uh, so when, <laughs> Hey, I could make stuff up if it was necessary. I'd, I, if I thought I had to make something up for it to be interesting, I would. But this is what was happening. And I was scared to get off stage. So when we took a break, I'd, I'd just pull out my acoustic guitar and practice. I was, I was the piano player in the band. But but I met Roger Hawkins and those those session guys from hanging out up there. And they, and they eventually said, hey, man, you want to? you want to play some acoustic guitar on in some studio stuff? Cause we don't really have a dedicated acoustic guitar player, muscle shows. And they didn't, they had great guitar players, you know, Dwayne yeah. had been there and Eddie Hinton had been there and Tippy Armstrong, Larry Byron from, from Steppenwolf. They were Pete Carr, phenomenal guitar players in muscle shows, but there wasn't a dedicated acoustic player. 
And so at 15, I got to go start playing in the studios in Muscle Shoals. And that's how that started. And then, you know, fell backwards into getting a record deal at, at uh, 19. And who knows how that happened exactly. But I was going to say, do you even remember how that happened? Well, I, I, I never would have gone. I'm so bashful and I was raised, you know, if I'm a farm kid, so we were raised not to call attention to yourself. That's, that's, that's not a good character trait to call attention to yourself the way we were raised. And so I, I never would have gone to Music City or, or any of or LA or New York and, and said somebody ought to listen to me. I just, I didn't, I'd never even played my songs for my parents. That's how bashful I was. And right. we had a, we had a session and the artist didn't show up for the session, missed a plane or something like that. So we had a band sitting there in the studio at Wishbone and in, in Muscle Shoals. And, and they said, well, who's got a song? Let's cut a song. Somebody's got something. And, and I, they pointed at me and I said, no, you know, and they went around <laughs> about, <laughs> went around about three times. And finally, uh, the engineer there that Steve Moore said, you know, he's just bashful. I know he writes songs and, uh, and they got me to play a song and I played, I played one and they went, well, shoot, we're just going to make a record on you. And <laughs> I, so I never went anywhere and knocked on any door. And because just the physics of Muscle Shoals being 40 minutes from Belmont, Mississippi, I could go there and fail and still be back home by supper time. <laughs> nobody know. Nobody knew, you know, so, so that, that's the only way that it's like six old Testament miracles, Daisy chained together for me to ever have a record deal. And it happened, you know, so I'm grateful. And now what you have 11, 10, how many have you made now? Gosh, I, I think this is the 15th studio. Album. Oh, I'm way behind. Lives. Well, yeah, well, there's no reason to listen to everything I do. You know? I only got I will one. tell you, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I've really only got one trick, you know, but <laughs> it seems to be working. Well, I'm, I'm great. Uh, yeah. You're the, uh, band leader for the Coral Reefer band, Jimmy Buffett's band, uh, you also make your own records. In fact, when I got home at uh, 12 o'clock today, just fresh from Hallamow's, eating roast beef and mashed potatoes and turnip greens and cornbread, there was an envelope in my mailbox, and it was your brand-new shiny record entitled hey. Once in a Lifetime. Oh, there you go. And so between the time that I unopened the package and till we dialed you up, I've been sitting here listening to your new record. Oh, man. And uh, it's really nice and talk about uh, – uh, what a moment, huh? What a, not a coincidence, but uh. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> timing. Who knew I know? would have anything to do with timing? <laughs> but I had heard, I had heard two cuts uh, on the internet. Yeah, uh, changing channels. I'd heard that one, and right. I had heard the title cut once in a lifetime, just because they're out there, and if you are on the internet, you see them and hear them, and right. So I had sampled those two, but man, oh man. What a collection of stories and beautiful music. It's just uh, incredible. Is it a COVID creation? Uh, were you working on this before you were uh, quarantined? We, we, we actually, uh, and as, it's not a concept album, but, but musically, the last four or five years, my show has been myself and Eric Darkin, the percussionist. Uh, right. You know, I did, I did a few years sort of with me and fingers, uh, and, and the last four or five years has been Eric and myself. And I and I wanted that to sort of be the the heart of the album. I think nine of the twelve tracks are just me and Eric, right. and uh, there's two or three that are ever rhythm section. But uh, we cut the tracks uh, in the breaks of Buffett's tour at the end of last year, the end of 2019, and uh, 
and then we went and recorded uh, Jimmy's album. I, I'm also in what I call the produce section on the Buffett Records with <laughs> with, uh, with Mike Utley. He and I produced Jimmy's albums, and we we made Jimmy's album, cut the tracks in Key West, and he, his deadline was be- before my de- my deadline's not really a deadline, <laughs> but Buffett's <laughs> deadline to come out. So we finished Jimmy's album as the as the pandemic started. And and I got to finish mine, uh, which was all the singing and overdubbing and mixing and that sort of stuff. There, there's not a ton of overdubbing, but I, I got I've been up here in the attic a lot this year, you know, uh, tweaking a little bit, you know, uh, yeah. uh, playing this and that guitar and and smiling and trying, you know, I I didn't intend to sing all the harmony parts because because it really hurts me to sing high, but I but there was nobody else here, so I did. <laughs> Can't get the cat to sing. Yeah, the cat wouldn't sing. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Malcolm White here with you in the studio. Well, actually, in my basement and Skyping in his attic, Mac McAnally. Welcome back, Mac. Well, good to still be up here. <laughs> I'm glad you're still there and you didn't drift off. That's right. We're telling that story about the Commodores and Jimmy Buffett during the break. You might as well share that one with our listeners. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we, we were talking about uh, in, in the old days, the college booking, when you were an act to get booked, they had these college booking shows, like sort of conferences that all the committees came to. And the, the deal was you got 10 minutes. You got 10 minutes to play. And and they start flashing a, a, a red light at th- at three minutes in one minute they, they start flashing it real hard and it and at 10 minutes they cut the pa system off so wow. that's how it works but it but it, it could be anybody genre it's not genre specific anybody might play before you or after you it could be heavy metal the time i did it i played right after a led zeppelin cover band but uh but buffett has the best one ever he he followed the commodores the full Commodores in full uniform with their own bus sitting outside that said the Commodores on it. And he was just sitting and, and they just killed and had the house going crazy. And, uh, and it was just him and Roger Bartlett that was the Coral Reefer band at that point. And he said, I looked at Roger and Roger said, what the hell are we going to do now? And Jimmy said, we're going to drink three shots of tequila piece and then I'm going to figure it out. And they, they went out there and his deal was his 10 minutes was he, he he talked for seven minutes about how awesome the Commodores was were, and and then he just played Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw, and brought the house down, <laughs> and and got more gigs than the Commodores did. It was a good time for for college gigs and Jimmy Buffett. That's great. And where were these conferences, convenings? They gathers? they moved around. They were generally sort of Midwest because because uh-huh. you know everybody had to travel. The one that I did was in Kansas City. That's the uh, that that's where I went to, because. Uh, my first record deal was at the tail end of the disco period where record labels, they loved throwing money at everything. They sent a limo to pick up the limo driver. You know, that's just the, <laughs> the way it worked back then. 
So they apply you anywhere to, to, to and and you know, unfortunately, I didn't really I didn't partake in all the stuff that was expensive that they were offering back then. But no. Yeah. <laughs> But I did go to Kansas City and and, and and I got some college bookings myself out of that. Mm. So how did you um, uh, come into the company of Fingers Taylor and Jimmy Buffett? How did you enter their world or they enter your world? How did that happen? Well, uh, the the guy that gave me my first record deal was uh, was a fellow named Jay Lasker, and his he and his whole staff were the the old staff of of ABC Dunhill, where Jimmy had had his first deal. Jay had given Buffett his first record deal, and you know I looked up to Jimmy because he was a homeboy. You know he's a Mississippi guy, and I, I was right. like, well, shoot, you know that's uh, I I had already learned pirate in Open G, and you know learned how to play that song and a cu- couple three of his songs I I knew by that point, but. And I didn't know anybody in the music business. And and going to L.A. might as well have been going to Mars for me. I mean, they, no, nobody in my family had flown on a plane. They broke mm. out into prayer groups when I had to go to L.A. <laughs> and sign a record deal. And but, and I'm just out there wearing my granddad's hand-me-down overalls. And, and I had this sort of Scottish Afro. We didn't know anything about conditioner <laughs> yet in North Mississippi. And, uh, and Jay Lasker... He, for some reason or other, he took a liking to me, and he sent a copy of my first record, sort of a storyteller, it's, it's story songs, to Jimmy. And he said, hey, this kid is from Mississippi like you, and he's a storyteller like you. He sort of reminds me of you 10 years younger. And and we, and we were actually a lot different. But Jimmy lit, rode around and listened to the, my record a couple of days. He was stuck in L.A. He had a gig canceled, and he was just stuck in L.A. And, and he listened to that record and sent me a little note that said, Hey, we're, you know, we're both from Mississippi and we're both storytellers and we're going to be friends and I'm going to sing some of your songs and we're going to make some songs together. And who knows, you know, who means what they say in show business. It's hard to say, but if you said nobody, you'd be right way more than you were wrong. Uh, (laughs) But, but turns out Jimmy meant all that stuff and, and all that stuff has come true. He's first time we were ever in the vicinity of one another. He sent for me, uh, he was playing the Spectrum in Philly, and I was playing the Bijou, opening for uh, Ian Tyson, I think. And uh, <clears throat> anyhow, I, I hooked up, and that's where I met Fingers and Utley and Buttry, and I, you know that that rogue band that was the Coral Reefer band at that point in time. And occasionally we'd cross paths, and I'd get up, and sit in, and and eventually, uh, he cut a record in Muscle Shoals, and he cut a song of mine called "It's My Job" about about trying to do your best at whatever you do, and. Uh, then I, from that point, he started getting me to come around and play and sing on the record some. And I was having kids at that time, so I, I didn't want to go on the road. He asked me about going on the road, but I stayed home and did studio stuff while my kids were young, and and wrote songs for other people. And uh, I and I loved that. I probably had more time with my kids than any any employed person that I knew. You'd have to be you'd have <laughs> right. to be unemployed to get hang with your kids more than I did. Uh, but you know, all the stuff that Jimmy talked about happening has happened in spades way more than that. And we're, we're a good team. I think, uh, he has a thousand ideas every day and he's got enough energy and enough talent for two or three counties. And I don't have a thousand ideas every day, but I'm kind of like a snapping turtle. I'm not going to turn loose of it till it, till it <laughs> polishes up pretty good. So I'm kind of the finished carpenter, you know, in the Coral Reefer band. My guest today is Mac McAnally. We claim him as a Belmont native, but we know he was born in Red Bay, Alabama, and lives in Nashville and Sheffield. 
But you got a country music marker in downtown Belmont. Downtown with your name Belmont, on I it. do. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, you know, the, the the reason I was born in Red Bay is because that was the closest doctor's office. There wasn't a doctor's office in Belmont, and same it was Tammy Wynette. Same, she was from Tremont. Right. And, uh, and 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 Red Bay was the closest doctor's office. She was actually born at the same doctor's office I was. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Maybe we should put a marker there. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we we could annex a little bit of Alabama, you know, for right. because because Tammy and I were definitely both Mississippians. When when we cut uh when we recorded back where I come from, we we went rounding up everybody we could find from Mississippi and we got Tammy. <laughs> she came and sang that's her singing harmonies at the Back where oh. I come from, hollering me and her and No Block and Paul Overstreet and uh, you know Tricia Walker, I think all all the Mississippi folks we could round up. Wow. Well, you maintain uh, sort of two careers at the same time. You've got this, I guess, somewhat full time job uh, managing and running Jimmy's band, and and then you've got your own career. Proof of which is these 15 albums and this new record that's just come out called once in a lifetime. How, how do you uh, prioritize all of that and how do you sort of manage it and scope it out? Is it Buffett priority or how do you deal with it? Uh, yeah, I try, I, I, I do everything. I mean, it, Jimmy's always been gracious. If I, if I need to, I used to miss shows for my kids' birthdays, but, <laughs> but, uh, I, I try to do everything he does, he wants to do, and then and then sort of spackle my, the rest of my career into the cracks of that schedule, and yeah. and and it's worked pretty well. He's he's been pretty gracious about, it. and and the way Jimmy works, the road particularly is you know we'll work for two weeks, two and a half weeks, and then we'll have three weeks off. So it's easy to do really, yeah. uh, and a lot of times when <clears throat> I'll I'll piggyback off of his travel if we if we finish up in Chicago, I'll I'll play city winery in Chicago for a couple of days and do the same thing in, in Atlanta, wherever we land. Uh, and sometimes before a leg starts, I'll go play a couple of shows and, and then just hang and play a couple of Mac shows after it's, so it's, it's pretty convenient the way that's worked. And it's perfect for me, Mal, because I, you, you, you know this about me probably, but I, I have zero of that, that ambition of somebody that wants to stand in the middle of the stage and, and say, <laughs> look at me. You know, yeah. I just, I'm, I was not born with any of that. I'm just a music guy. I want to make music a little better tomorrow than I did yesterday. And I fall flat on my butt trying to sometimes, but, I, but that's, that's really what makes me go is I want to make some music and I want to get better at it. And so being a Coral Reefer member, getting to stand to the right of Jimmy, you know, he, he has that ambition of, of and, 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 and that's a quality. I'm, I'm grateful that he has it. And I get to draft off of his in the NASCAR sense of drafting, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, it, you know, he, he pulls, he pulls a big train, uh, with that whole organization. And I love getting to be part of that. And the Coral Reefer crew and band are like second family to me. But, but the fact that I, I get to go in the cracks of that time and express myself and say the things that are important to me to say, and that, that if Matt, you know, I don't make albums because I have a deadline. I make album because I, I've lived three or four years of life and I've wrote down some stuff to help me remember what I thought was important about that three or four years. And that's what my albums are. And, and I get to play Hal and Miles and I get to play, you know, city wineries and little, little listening rooms around the country. And Jimmy's fans are real gracious. And there's been, you know, I, there's been some fans that I picked up in the beginning and that have followed me all these years. And I'm a hard guy to follow. 
you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not easy to keep up with my little hangnail of a, of a career, but, uh, but folks have, have gone to the trouble of doing it. I, I, I say sometimes I've got, you know, eight carloads of fans, but they're real serious. Yes, <laughs> they are. <laughs> I, I have catered to them for years. Well, I appreciate it. I, I'm and how many, how many years have you been in coral reef? that experience uh well i've been on the records all the way back to like 1980 but i became a, a member of the coral reefer band in i think in 95 mm-hmm. officially so so it's been a while now it's, yeah uh, that's, that's 25 years ago but uh, now for the for the business uh listener the listener who's interested in uh the industry you and jimmy have separate managers separate booking agents right and so yeah. y'all have to coordinate all this stuff yes we do yeah uh, and, and, and that usually involves me bending to his schedule, you know, which, which I'm happy to do. And my, my management and my agency's guys are, are so good. Uh, they, they know my nature, Mal, is to be a sideman, to, uh, to be a supporting act, you know? And yeah. so they know that, that I'm, I'm not going to give them too many days to book me. There's not too many windows in there. I'm not, I'm not ever going to play a full but but I, last year I think I did 34 or 35 shows last year and Jimmy did maybe 40 45 so uh you know uh, that that this year is going to knock that average down pretty hard <laughs> yeah it's going to be a rough year for <laughs> yeah. live performances yeah it it is and I'm I'm really grateful to be able to to sit in the attic and and, and I've, I've been able to play some sessions on 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 records cuz a lot of records are getting made remotely now so so I, I've sit right in this chair. I'm talking to you and, and and gotten to play on quite a few records this year. And that's that that puts me among the the the, the blessed among musicians because so many of my friends, their only avenue is to go play a live show and they can't. You know, right, and right. I feel yeah. for them, but but at least we got music. You know, music's one of the best things in the world, whether or not it comes with any money. Yeah, and you've had a a great long career. You've you continue to to win accolades, and that's not what it's about for you. But I know you've won the CM, CMA Musician of the Year Award a million times, and I think you prob- <laughs> probably finally told them to quit giving it to you. <laughs> I tried to retire my jersey a couple of times because uh, there's no way I deserve uh, all of that. But 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 I am grateful because the way the the voting's structured, it's it's people who do the same thing as you that actually vote for. So somebody appreciates how I go about my business, and I'm grateful. And, and the folks that I get nominated with are, are lifetime heroes of mine. So I am, I am honored, but, uh, but that you're right. That's not, that's not why I go about it. The, the reason that I go about it is to try to get to do it again tomorrow. That's really it. I want to get to play again tomorrow. And, and so far I do, you know, so far I get to try again tomorrow. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app.
Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Malcolm White here, and uh, Mac McAnally is my guest and my old friend. Welcome back, Mac. Thank you, Mal. Sure is a pleasure. Man, it's all mine, and I'm so excited about the new record. But before I ask you to talk about it, I want to know what is the proper way to talk about a record. We used, we've called them all sorts of things, LPs, records, albums. What, what do you refer to it as? I still think of it as an album. It's an album is a collection. I think I don't, I, I, it's not necessarily a chunk of pressed out vinyl. Uh, it, it's a collection of stuff. And these, these songs, some of them are new and some of them are songs that, that I, like, uh, that, that I wrote a long time ago, the changing channels that I wrote with Jimmy back in the eighties. Uh, and he oh. cut it. He cut a great version of that on the Off to See the Lizard album, and I, I figured, why would I ever need to cut that? Buffett, you know, cut it. But over the years, I, I like the song a lot. I pull it out and play it in my shows, and his fans come up after the show sometimes and they go, man, which which one of your records has got changing channels on it? And I go, well, I, I never recorded it. And they go, well, I want to buy it. <laughs> you know? And and I'm somewhere around the worst businessman that's ever been, but eventually enough folks asking me to buy my version of it. And maybe I should cut changing channels. I love it anyway. So it's on the record and it's, it's probably the oldest song that's on the record, but I got you know old and new. I'm always that doing that. How intimidating was it to record Norwegian wood? Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> it, and I, I, I've been lucky enough to get to, to hang around with uh, Sir Paul a, a few times in the last couple of years, and uh, I, I haven't told him that I cut it yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but that's a song that I've always played. My, my, my daughter uh, did an interview with me a couple of weeks ago, and she reminded me that I've always played that song around the kids. And I always played it exactly the way John played it, you know, on ND on a, on a guitar. But about five years ago, I bought uh, an octave mandolin that's part of my show now. And uh, I, my Southern Baptist guilt about spending money on an instrument, it, when I already have quite a few instruments at this point in my life, I've got more than I need for sure. But I, I sort of fell in love with this octave mandolin, and, and I, I had to do something to channel the guilt of purchasing it. And, I, and, I, and the first thing I did was come up with this arrangement of Norwegian wood in a different key. I, I it, I sing it like a fourth above where the Beatles did it. And uh, I don't make any claim that, that it's in any way competitive with the Beatles, but I just love that song so much. And, and I've gotten used to playing it in the show, and, I, and Eric and I do a kind of a cool thing with it. It's a big part of the show. And I, I, you know, you've know, you seen my show a lot. I don't do a whole lot of covers in the show, but uh, right. but that one's gotten to be fun to play, and it, it helps me amortize the price of the octave mandolin. And uh, <laughs> keeps you right with God. It does. It keeps me keeps me right with God. And and, and I do love that song. And from a you know as a songwriter, I, I'm I've always been a stickler about first lines. You know, 
in the first line of that song, I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. Once you say that, you can go anywhere, <laughs> and I'm going with you. <laughs> it, you know, that's just yeah. a great first line. You know, and I, I don't. You you probably remember mine. My first album, I had a song called Barney, and the first line was. Barney came to the gossip bench and said, I barbecued a dog on a tractor axle yesterday down at the dump yard. That's a long first line. But once I say that, you're in the truck with me. You know, I mean, <laughs> right. so I got one, but I mean, but the first line of Norwegian Wood is, is just cash money. Yes, yes, as, as we know. Now, I was also bragging uh, in, in between the break about your whistling and and the tune that's why they call it falling and you said you say you're not a very good whistler but no no i would challenge people to listen to this song and uh disagree with you on that well uh it, a lot of the stuff that i did on this particular record i did just because i'm the only guy in the attic there was you know it, it was it, we were finishing the record as pandemic i did want it to be primarily eric on percussion and me on whatever else but but uh, you know i play a few instruments and 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 I love putting harmony parts together and that sort of stuff. But somebody somebody had to whistle, and I was the only guy in the house, so it it fell to me. And I appreciate that you like it, though. That's good. No, right? no, that's on just right. It's on, it's on just yeah, just right is yeah, the song yeah. that got the whistling. Got, got, got the wrong song there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we crossed over a couple of songs there, but uh, yeah, but yeah, just right. It myself and Will Kimbrough wrote that song and had a big time. And it's the Coral Reefer band. There's I think there's about three tracks that are not just Eric Darkin and myself, and that one's the full Coral Reefer band which is awesome. They're great. And man, there's that great Grasser song, Brand New Broken Heart. It, I mean, it's just full-on string music. It really is, and I'm not, that's not my forte. You know, I, I appreciate it, and I get to hang with some of the best in the world. Not some of the best in the world, the best in the, the world. The best. Yeah, <laughs> the actual best in the world. So I'm embarrassed uh, to, to try to be a, a fake bluegrasser for a second, but I love the music so much, and I, I wrote that song like 2007, I wrote it and demoed it, and and in my mind, I was going to pitch it to Ricky Skaggs or some of my buddies that you know, or you know, yeah. Douglas or the guys that I get to, you know, share a studio with on occasion. And I'm just too, I don't, I, it's not lazy. I'm I'm bashful about pitching songs, and I just never really pitched it. And I'm sitting here putting this record together, and I go, man, I I like that thing too much, you know, and I probably am not going to go and knock on somebody's door and say, please cut this song. And, and several of the cuts that I've had over the years from other people have been because they got one of my records, you know, handed to them or they lost a hand of poker and they ended up one of my <laughs> records. So, <laughs> unintentional collectors. It was the musical chairs and they, <laughs> they, 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 they got the record. But, uh, but I, it's just enough fun to sing and, and, and play that I, I went ahead and put it on the record, even though, even though I'm not the best at that sort of thing. I am really happy about that song. I'm glad I wrote it. So you say it's not a concept album, but it's, it's just an album of all songs and new songs, and it just came at, a, at this time because you had the time? That's pretty much it, yeah. And, uh, and I think because... I, I, well, it's my nature to try to find something good in anything bad. The pandemic is generally bad, but, but it, it, it afforded me more time than I would have usually had to, to, to really flesh out this and make it sound as close to like I heard it in my head as, uh, as I could with, you know, given my, my God given limitations, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I did, I did get to, you know, finish out the, the harmony parts the way I wanted them to, even though it's me singing most all the harmony, but, uh, 
I, I love that. I've always liked to just stack harmony. My, my, my family growing up, we, we sang hymns two or three nights a week and we'd have our whole neighborhood to come to our house and stomp the floor and drink coffee and smoke <laughs> cigarettes. The ones that could, I, I didn't smoke any cigarettes, but I sang. And, and so my sense of harmony kind of comes out of church music, but I do, I do love getting to apply it, uh, every once in a while. And so I, I actually had a, even though I was stuck here at the house by myself, I had a lot of fun finishing up this record and, uh, like we cut the basic tracks with Eric and then it, then it was just me piling stuff on. And the, the, there's a, the first song on the record alive and in between, uh, is, is a guitar lick. The, the core of that is a guitar lick that I've been playing while I changed guitar strings since I was a teenager. So uh. I, mean, I didn't write the song until a couple of years ago, but, uh, but eventually I, I kept saying, eventually it's a cool lick. I'm going to make something out of it. And, and, it, and, you know, it turned into a song 40-something years later. That's pretty cool. Uh, and, and from start to finish, let's just stick with that song. When you decided you were going to use the lick, how long did it take to put the words with the music? Well, it, it was like a lot of songs that I end up liking. This was an assignment. We, uh, it, we were part of a, I was part of a, a, a touring art show called Trio. And the, the, the deal was to take a novel and to have a music artist read the novel and interpret it musically, and to have a visual artist read the novel and interpret it visually. And there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a, a Mississippi writer, uh, or a, a originally Mississippi writer, named Harrison Scott Key, and he wrote a book called The World's Largest <laughs> Man. Funny, and, funny. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's the book that they assigned to me. And, and it's a great book. It, it, it actually made an impression on me, but, but what it also did was, was wake up me hanging around in Belmont with the storytellers and the guy that whittled we had a bunch of guys that sat and whittled on the courthouse bench and exaggerated basically for, for a living. That's, and it, it woke up my young Belmont mindset. And that, and that song came out of that. And, and it, uh, it toured as part of that art show for, for a year, oh, okay. about, about two and a half years ago, I guess it was written. And same thing. I, I've been I've been wanting to put that on a record the whole time ever since I wrote the song, and uh, and finally got to mainly because there, there that line there's a line in the chorus uh, uh, like a June bug in late July, I downplay what it means. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. That's great. <laughs> you, know, you don't really want to think too hard about being a June bug in late July, but uh, <laughs> but I never heard anybody else say that in a song, and I I wanted to. You just had to. I had to say it. Yeah. <laughs> Just Like It Matters is a heartbreaker with a great steel guitar. Um, oh, man, Paul Franklin. Good, what a great song. He, well, thank you, Bunch. I, that's got a little real DNA on it. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that good of an imagination. <laughs> but, uh, but I did, I, I did specifically, and I, I waited till Paul... Uh, uh, until we, we quarantined Paul, he, he, he was downstairs in the dining room <laughs> and I was <laughs> up here in the attic guitar. with his steel guitar. Yeah. And, uh, but, but getting to play that instrumental section with him, it actually means the world to me. I, 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 I waited on finishing the record until we got to do that. Cause he's one of, he, he's probably the best in the world, but he's also one of my best friends from us sessions over the years. And I, and we met one another. He came down to Muscle Shoals. I think he's maybe two years younger than me, but we both started based straight out of diapers in studios, and, and we've known one another all that time, and it's it's so great to get to play with Paul. 
Well, um, you know, talk about, if you would, just a second, again, the, let's talk about the new record, uh, Once in a Lifetime, and sort of, you say you did it all there, more or less, uh, in your attic studio with friends and doing a lot of it yourself. I noticed you play piano, you play Hammond B3, you play mandolin, you play all these different instruments. How long did it take? Uh, well, we, we, Eric and I cut the initial tracks down at Muscle Shoals. You've been to my place down there. That well, I call yeah. that that's La La Land, and it, and this attic is La La North. <laughs> oh, so that's La La North. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, but uh, yeah, but but uh, we 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 tracked it in in Muscle Shoals with the with the, the old and that's a proper studio. You know, it's got a it's it's actually got a. A big old need console sitting in what used to be the dining room. I call it the fancy eating table, like the Beverly Hills. You know, but, uh, but so we tracked it down there. The like I said, late 2019, and then and then I got to sit at my leisure and 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 finish it up up here. Right after we we finished Jimmy's album, and I went straight to work on this one. And because of the pandemic, Jimmy's deadline moved a little bit, and it gave me extra time to finish this up. And and I. I hope I used it well. I, 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 I think the original thought, you, anybody's tendency, if you give them too much time in the studio, is to is to polish and polish and polish. And this is this is not real polish. It's just literally what what occurred to me to play. And and I, I had a big time, even though I was up here by myself. I had a big time. <laughs> me and me and some music had a big party. Yeah, party for one. Yeah. So what is shrimp boat? Shrimp Boat is Jimmy's studio down in okay. Uh, okay. It, 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 that's shrimp, shrimp Boat Sound, and it's uh, it's awesome. It's literally two steps out of the harbor. Uh, it's it, and the, and the reason it's called Shrimp Boat is it's it's right there. It's it's a little concrete block building where they used to dump shrimp. Oh. that's that's it, it's a studio now, but but they're just getting the smell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> After all these years, yeah, from from like '75, the last time it was a, a you know a shrimp room too. But it, it's a, it is a great studio. We have a lot of the same gear in both of our places, and uh, and and we go there because that's that whole saltwater cowboy thing is uh, is kind of Jimmy's deal, you know. And, and Jerry Jeff Walker sent him to Key West. And said he Jimmy had been hanging with Jerry Jeff in Austin, and, and Jerry Jeff said you need to go to Key West, man. That's where you're gonna find your deal. And it and it was, that is where he found his deal. Yes, and, indeed. Yeah. A better part of living. The last song, terrific. What, what oh, a, thank you. That's a beautiful piece of writing there. Uh, did you deliberately let it be the end? I did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. Because well, I said earlier in the interview, you know, my my dad Lyman, Senior, was uh, was and is my my hero, and he's not here anymore. And I'd cut a ever how big of a check I could write to, to hang with him for a couple of days at this point in time. But I remember a whole lot of hanging with him and, and a, a few things that he said are mashed into that song and a few things I try to live by and a few things that I've said along the way, but I give him credit for it because he, because he counts better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's some of my sayings and some of his sayings are in there, but, uh, but it has a lot to do with the way I was raised and the place I was raised, which I'm, that's, you know, I, I love talking to you wherever we are in the world, but 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 you and I are both grateful to come from North Mississippi. I think though it, it had a big and has a big influence over how I go about my business wherever I am, and I'm I'm grateful for that, and and I try to honor that with the uh, 
with my work when I when I get to do my work every four or five years. You know, I put out a record whether I have to or not. And uh, this that's hopefully that's all mashed into that song. The better part of living. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. 